0: Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. Okay, we have with us today Brett Salkeld. He is the theologian for the Archdiocese of Regina, Saskatchewan, and he's served for many years on the National Canadian Roman Catholic Evangelical Dialogue. He is the books editor for the journal Pro Ecclesia, and he's written or edited several books himself, uh, including... Can Catholics and Evangelicals Agree About Purgatory and the Last Judgment? That's from 2011. His latest book picks up another cardinal belief, one just as controversial. It's called Transubstantiation, Theology, History, and Christian Unity. Thank you, Brett. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Well, my first question here is, you're picking something with the subtitle Christian Unity uh, is there, are there many more things over which we've seen Christian disunity than transubstantiation?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a big one. It starts, I mean, right at the beginning of the Reformation, it's, it's sort of singled out by Luther as problematic. Yep. Uh, and, and the Reformation is basically unanimous on this. There's not one reformer who's sympathetic to transubstantiation. And so ever since then, it's been a, and, and then Catholics kind of double down on it. Uh, so ever since then, it's been a sort of major point of contention in the West, though one of the things uh, you know, that led me to write the book is that I noticed that, that despite the the sort of vociferous back and forth, a lot of people doing the arguing don't seem to know what the word means. And so I got the sense that it was functioning more as an identity marker hmm. than an actual theological concept, and I thought it would be worth going digging to see if there might be more in common than our sort of uh, centuries of polemic would lead us to believe.
0: Right. Well, you know, to get to the history here, you, you say you mentioned something on, on deep into the book at page 70 in the book that I, I wasn't aware of. I'm not a theologian, but the, first, the term didn't even come into use until the second millennium. Right.
1: Yeah. It's So it's 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 I like to say, you know, like the Trinity, it's not a biblical term, as Protestants will know. But, but somewhere along the line, the question gets put to the church, and not in the East, by the way. This just, just isn't a question in the East. But in the West, um, the question comes to the church, is this real or symbolic? And that question doesn't emerge for a thousand years, because if you're basically culturally Platonist, uh, which is what you know the church most of the church fathers would have been uh, the question is it real or symbolic they would have said well yes uh, <laughs> and it's only in a later sort of metaphysics that this question becomes the kind of question it is for us today these sort of mutually exclusive examples and so substance the, the language of substance emerges to try to answer the question of how something can be really really real but not Reducible to the physical, which is kind of how, you know our our culture thinks about what's really real, yeah, but also still takes into account the symbolic element that makes a sacrament a sacrament, right? So how do you say it's really, really real? And how do you say it still follows the rules that sacraments follow? Mm-hmm. Uh, and substance kind of fits the bill. And so within, there's this, there's this exchange where um, a fellow named Berengarius has to swear an oath in front of the Pope because he's, he's opted for the symbolic sort of option in this false dichotomy, and his first oath, he has to swear um, that Christ is present in the Latin sensualiter, which literally means something like present to the five senses, which actually kind of makes a hash of Eucharistic theology, because if you've ever been to Mass, you know that there's no change according to our five senses. So mm-hmm. then you end up with strange things like um, God is deceiving us, that there's a sort of veil over the physical transformation so that we're not disgusted by it. 20 years later after this. What what what, what year is this roughly? This is the first oath, I think, is 1059. Mm-hmm. And 20 years later in 1079, if I've got that right, Berengarius is back in Rome and he has to swear again because the first oath basically didn't work. And the theological community in the 20 years in between the oaths has, has come up with the, this term substantiality. They don't make it up. I mean, we have it in the creed, you know, consubstantial with the Father. Mm-hmm. Um, substantial has a pedigree in, in Christian theology. But they come up with applying it to this context as a way of saying, here's something that's really, really, really real, but it's not physical and it obeys the, the basic logic of sacraments. And once that enters the the tradition, substantialiter in the second oath of Berengarius, it's only a few short steps to uh, transubstantiation, which is first sort of broached at the Fourth Vatican Council in 1215. And later that century in the work of Thomas Aquinas comes to its sort of crystallized form that, even though other people had different versions of transubstantiation after Thomas, they're almost universally seen as regressive and that Thomas actually nailed it and, and Trent, in response to the reformers' critiques, quotes Thomas almost word for word. And to this day, Catholics, when they're looking for the articulation of, of transubstantiation, they look at Thomas and, and the Summa.
0: You actually refer to a quote uh, from a, a commission statement that you say, Actually, is a pretty good introduction to the meaning of transubstantiation. It's on page 2021 20, in your book. I'm going to read it. Okay. Uh, when, when, when they talk about the 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 Eucharist becoming, you know, the process of becoming here, the bread and wine become the body and blood. Being hum, becoming here does not imply material change, nor does the liturgical use of the word imply that the bread and wide, wine become Christ's body and blood in such a way that in the Eucharistic celebration, his presence is limited to the consecrated elements. It does not imply that Christ becomes present in the Eucharist in the same manner that he was present in his earthly life. It does not imply that this becoming follows the physical laws of this world. What is here affirmed is a sacramental presence in which God uses the realities of this world to convey the realities of the new creation. Bread for this life becomes the bread of eternal life. Before the Eucharistic prayer, to this question, what is that? The believer answers, it is bread. After the Eucharistic prayer, to the same question, he answers, it is truly the body of Christ, the bread of life. You like that.
1: I, yeah. So that, so that's from a, a Roman Catholic Anglican dialogue. And the context is that the the earlier document had had used the language of becoming. And one of the funny things that happens in these dialogues when they avoid the word transubstantiation is the Catholics say, oh, have you have you forgotten or sort of um, abandoned transubstantiation? And the, the non-Catholics, in this case, the Anglicans, say, are you quietly sneaking in transubstantiation? And and the the term that was flagged by some Anglicans was the term becoming and so what, what this elucidation does, this is a follow-up to an original document. This elution, elucidation says, becoming doesn't mean X, it doesn't mean Y, it doesn't mean Z. It, it does mean A. And transubstantiation actually does something very similar, right? It, it, it clears away false imagination uh, around Eucharistic change to say it's it's not this kind of this worldly change, uh, it's not a physical process. It's not some clandestine chemical, you know, uh, procedure. Um, but its but its logic is properly sacramental, and that doesn't mean it's not real. And that's the danger in the tradition: is when whenever one, when, whenever anyone tries to say this, the logic here is sacramental. Some people say, "Well, that's not real enough." And in fact, after Thomas, that was one of the things that happens with Scotus: is he says oh, this, this isn't real, Thomas's articulation is not real enough, It's he doesn't say it's too sacramental, but if effectively that's what it comes down to, and he wants a more physical articulation of the change, um, which is in the end what ends up getting rejected at the Reformation is not so much Thomas's articulation, which I argue is properly sacramental, but a, but a more sort of physicalist, naturalist kind of articulation that Thomas himself pretty clearly rejects. And so I, I like this elucidation from the Roman Catholic uh, Anglican dialogue, because it, it's doing the same work that transubstantiation was doing in, in the 13th century of clearing away false readings of Eucharistic change uh, and, and sort of leaving room for our sacramental imagination, which is still really real. In fact, it's, it's more real. We actually think that even in our common language, we recognize that there's something more real about us than our physical properties. You know, uh, if, if I were to um, compare you with the body you were in seven years ago, I would find scientists tell us that almost all of your cells will have been completely sort of recycled. You don't have a single cell left from seven years ago. But in you, there's some sort of principle of identity and continuity that's actually a deeper reality than the physical cells, which can sort of cycle through. What is the, well, what is
0: consubstantiation? What's the difference between consubstantiation and transubstantiation?
1: Right. Well, this is a big question for, for people who wonder about Lutheran theology in particular, but you actually have to start well before Luther. Um... When this stuff is first floating in the eleventh and twelfth century, there's kind of three theories of transubstantiation, one of which is consubstantiation. So the three are um, annihilation replacement, where uh, the the substances of the bread and wine are annihilated and replaced by the body and blood of Christ. And Thomas says that won't work. Um, consubstantiation says the substances of the um, bread and wine remain, and the substances of Christ's body and blood are added to them. So con meaning with, they exist together. And transubstantiation says um, the substances of the body and blood of Christ are, sorry, of the bread and wine are precisely what becomes the substance of the body and blood of Christ. And uh, initially, all three are kind of available as, as understandings. But as time goes on, the theological community settles on the third one, which which we today call transubstantiation, and and for a variety of reasons, Thomas thinks it's much more philosophically coherent. It also is much more um, in line with the church's eschatology, right? That that this creation is what becomes the new creation. It's not destroyed and replaced, and it does not continue to exist alongside, but it is actually transformed from within. When by the time of Luther um, Transubstantiation is is kind of misunderstood at, as uh, well, it, it's it's become in a lot of ways the annihilation replacement theory. And the what we call the accident, so the physical attributes of bread and wine that we can see and touch and taste and smell, are are often perceived as a kind of disguise. And all of the reformers think, well, this isn't sacramental because they have to represent they have to represent something real. It can't be a disguise. That's not how God operates, and that's not how the sacraments are supposed to work. So Luther says Luther never actually endorses consubstantiation by name. But Luther says, why, why can't we say that the bread and wine continue to exist? We need them there for the sacrament to be a sacrament. Uh, and so his articulation gets identified with consubstantiation. Some Lutherans are happy with that, but others want to say, no, no, Luther never used the term himself. It's interesting. There's an article I quote quite extensively, written by Joseph Ratzinger, I think in the 1960s, where he points out that if what you mean to say by consubstantiation is simply that the physical reality of bread and wine remain uh, so that our senses can perceive something true in the sacrament, it's not actually the opposite of transubstantiation at all. Because Thomas Aquinas had been asked the question, or had put the question to himself in the Summa, you know. are we deceived if the accidents show us bread and wine, but the true reality underlying them is Christ's body and blood? And Thomas just says, "No, we're not deceived because our, our senses perceive the accidents, and the accidents are really there." Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it, it, do, it, it when you when you look at the level of intention, what Luther is trying to say which, with what gets called consubstantiation. Um, it's not that different from what Catholics are trying to say with transubstantiation. And that's a lot of the work I do in the book is I, I try to translate out of different philosophical and historical contexts to look at the level of intention and say, are, are the reformers trying to say the opposite of transubstantiation? Or are they, do they feel a need to reject it because it was no longer understandable in their day? But then they have to replace it with something because at least Luther and Calvin want real presence. And then they have to figure out how to say it in their own time and place. And, and my argument essentially in the book is, if they don't get exactly transubstantiation, they get a lot closer than we've been led to believe.
0: Yeah. You, you have a quote uh, on page 134, you say, the accidents of the bread and wine are not in a relationship of subsisting in Christ's body and blood, but rather a relationship of signifying Christ's body and blood. Now, the, the but the signifying has to be, there. there's something, there's some, I don't know what language to use, organic, there's something necessary about that sign, signification. It's not just a, it's not just a, a, a you know, a, an arbitrary sign.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the relationship of signifying, it's not like, you know, Jesus could have just picked any random household item. I mean, there's there's a whole strand of, of salvation history, you know, going to Melchizedek and Passover and all that kind of stuff in the Old Testament about bread and wine. Um, and then there's the logic of food, right? Like, what do you use to make a body? When I go to the grocery store, I have seven children, so I have an obscene sort of, you know, their, their eyes light up when I pull into the, into the checkout line.
0: Uh, sir, my, my respect for you just uh, quadrupled.
1: And so i spend this obscene amount of money at the grocery store and as they're checking it through i just tell myself this will all be turned into children like Uh (laughs) what like that's what food does right foods the end of food the telos of food is to be turned into body that's that's what food is like every cell of you is made out of food and so the logic of of the eucharist the symbolic logic the sacramental logic is that food is what you use to make a body and and so Christ feeds His body with with uh, the sacrament of the Eucharist, and thereby builds it up, which is how you make any body, right? Um, and so, it, yeah, it's it's not arbitrary at all. It is it is it's not just a sort of convenient cover for something else. It, the logic of sacrament is built in, and so there is a a symbolic reality. I mean, even the Baltimore Catechism describes or defines sacraments in terms of symbol. The problem is when, in our culture, we hear symbol and we think not real, and and transubstantiation is trying to say um, yes and. Obviously, there's a there's a non-arbitrary sacramental symbolic logic, and that is actually a, when God is the actor here, that reality is is deeper than um, the merely physical. And I think when the church uses the term real presence, I think that's shorthand for saying God is the actor who determines the reality. Hmm.
0: You you mentioned, quote, sacramental sign. What makes a sign sacramental?
1: I, well, I think there would be two, t- at least two factors. One is that it, it, it's, um, it's sort of given to us by Christ, right? So Christ could have, in theory, chosen other sacraments. Um, uh, but when, when Christ gives us water and baptism or uh, bread and wine at Eucharist, uh, there's something sort of designated, there's something particular and historical about it. Um, so that's, that's one element. But then the other element is that there's this kind of internal logic where um, something that we do in life, like eating or bathing, um, comes to represent something in the spiritual life, that shows a continuity. Maybe you'd say between nature and grace. There's a kind of elevation of of our um, reality in, in, into a recognition that God meets us in this material, temporal reality, uh, and communicates grace through the realities of uh, you know the material realities of that um, of that universe that He's created. So there's there's something in there about the sense that. God is active and present in creation. It's an extension of the logic of the incarnation, which is partly why, you know, it has this historical and particular characters around, uh, around the particulars of it. Because God comes to a particular time and place in a particular culture with a particular religious heritage, and his grace is present, even though it's present in, in a certain way in all of creation, it's present in a particular way that's accessible to us in this time and place. And sacraments carry out that that logic where it says, yes, God is present really in every bath and in every meal. Um, but God is present in a particular way where he has promised to meet us, where we follow his commands and do what we've been told to do as as a community of faith. Then we can be assured of um, God's, meeting God in these places.
0: Now, Luther says, he thinks that all this talk about accidents and substance i mean everything was fine until these doggone aristotelians came along you know 300 years before and and just complicated everything made a mess of it
1: yeah yeah well and so it's interesting to watch Luther's own development he initially says i just want real presence without the philosophy right the bible says this is my body that's good enough for me it should be good enough for everybody um and in this way, Luther is not unlike the early church, which didn't have any controversy around the topic. Uh, they were content to take the witness of scripture and the tradition of the church at sort of face value. Um, and the church only needs, you know, these categories when the question gets put to it in a new context, right? As we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, Luther himself thinks, let's just let's just have the witness of scripture. We don't need philosophy. Um, and then the Swiss reformers say, well, it can't be really present. It must mean only in a sign. And then Luther says, well, just look at the, the words of scripture. It says, this is my body, not this signifies my body. And the Swiss say, yeah, but that can't be right. So we we're justified in interpreting it as this signifies. And then Luther is forced. And he says this explicitly. I am now forced to do philosophy because someone is saying that the, that the plain words of scripture are incoherent and can't be taken at face value. And so I need philosophy now to demonstrate that scripture is not incoherent, that the basic claim of, of the tradition and of scripture is not nonsense and can be interpreted in a meaningful way. So in, in the span of you know a decade or two, Luther goes through what the church went through over like a millennium, which is let's just take the, the, the faith at face value and oh, wait a minute. Now that someone has asked the question, I can't do that anymore. Now I actually have to engage and show that the thing I'm claiming is the faith of the church is actually a meaningful claim, and it's not incoherent.
0: You know, it it raises a quote that I wrote down uh, while, while reading the book, where you say, in such a context, theology's task is to clear away misunderstanding, though not with an eye to fully disclosing the mystery, for that is impossible and and transubstantiation seems to me an exact case where the the mystery can't be be fully eliminated philosophy can only take you so far on on this yeah
1: right no that's exactly right and one of the common misunderstandings even among devotees of the doctrine you know traditional catholics who want to hold strongly to this as an identity marker is that it's some kind of um articulation of how God does this work. But if you start looking at it, it's really much more, uh, there's a lot of negative theology and transubstantiation. It's, well, it doesn't mean this, and it doesn't mean this. And please don't understand it to mean this. Uh, you know, common misreadings are cleared away to leave room for a claim. Its job is to say this claim that Christ's body and blood are really present is not incoherent. We can see that it's not just nonsense. Um, but we can't say um, exactly how God does it. in 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 the final uh, sort of um, analysis, Thomas says something which which is repeated at the, at the time of the Reformation. He says it's by the by the power of the Word of God and by the power of the Spirit of God. Uh, and Luther really emphasizes the role of the Word in the Eucharist, and Calvin really emphasizes the role of the spirit so all all of the sort of major three three theologians that I look at in this book um, recognize that in the end, this is something sort of analogous to the act of creation, where God determines something to be what it is. And we can we can understand it to a degree, and we can know that it's not nonsense, but we can't um, sort of completely expose and and articulate exactly. You know God's action. There's something mysterious about God's action with respect to creation and with respect to the Eucharist in particular, um, that that we can we can always know more about. You know, and that's part of what mystery means in the Catholic uh, tradition. It's not that it's nonsense. It's not that we can know nothing, but it's that we can never know everything.
0: Yeah, that that runs against so much of the the modern impulse, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. No, the 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 idea that uh, reason, ratiocination would just run up against a limit, and and that leaving the mystery or accepting the mystery—that's just contrary to to everything that that we understand in the in the modern world.
1: One of the things I I think is important for transubstantiation, and and that in fact is I think we see evidence for it in a in a kind of return among young people to more traditional Catholic piety around the Eucharist and. I would add, among uh, uh, a return to a, a higher liturgical sensibility among many Protestants, and particularly evangelicals, who have typically had a low sacramental sort of sense, is this recognition that that the modern um, uh, abhorrence of mystery is actually wildly unsatisfying. And we see this in a couple ways. I mean, we're all worried about the new atheists and, and this sort of hyper-rationality and whatever else. But if you go for you know Thanksgiving dinner, you're more likely to to have family members who think that their pets talk to them, than than people who believe you know everything that Sam Harris says. Uh, so people are not really convinced, I feel, by this this sort of um, abandonment of transcendence. And I and then I would suggest that even the people who think they are convinced of it actually find their transcendence somewhere, maybe in a in a radical political movement or, or some, you know, social cause, um, people are looking for something deeper than, than what is, you know, st- strictly mathematically and scientifically provable. And so I think um, a healthy articulation that says, you know, I think the Catholic tradition gets this balance pretty good and, and transubstantiation is a case in point. It's not irrational, it's not unreasonable, it's not nonsense, it's not incoherent, but it's not sort of circumscribable by our reason. And I think that intuitively is, is how humans feel about reality in general, is that reality is a mystery, but it's not irrational. And, and so, um, there, there's something in, in transubstantiation that is a sort of microcosm of a Catholic approach to the world and to mystery and to reason that I think is is deeply uh, attractive to the human heart because there's something intuitive about that uh, that basic claim that we can know real and true things and also that that the universe is mysterious.
0: On, on, on that issue of the, the Catholics, is there, I mean, you, you talk about it in the last 30, 40 years, we have had a lot of of discussion between between different Catholics and and Protestants over transubstantiation, and that they're moving a lot closer toward agreement. Even if there's no final agreement, there's much more concord than there was in the previous uh, 800 years.
1: Right. Yeah. Well. So in the in the first years after the Catholic Church joins the ecumenical movement after Vatican II. There's remarkably fast agreement on what we would call real presence. So not a specifically Catholic articulation like transubstantiation, but the basic sense that Christ is really present. God is the primary actor. Huge swaths of of, uh, sort of mainline Christian tradition in the West agree on that. It was never a question in the East. And even um, the, the, the... descendants of Zwingli and the more like purely symbolic uh reading that gets that's become more and more mitigated even even while your sort of protestant megachurch on the outskirts of the city is likely to have a lot of that in the pews it's less common in the seminaries it's certainly less common in the theological literature and so there's becoming there's a bit of a trickle down that something like real presence is becoming more and more commonly held uh, even by, um, Protestants whose tradition is more sort of symbolic, but transubstantiation always stood out. It was, it was sort of like, well, that's too loaded a term. Uh, And so let's sort of sideline it, um, so that we can agree on real presence. And that might've been a really good move initially, and it was, it was productive, but then it left open the question, does this mean the Catholics are abandoning transubstantiation? Or on the flip side, does this mean that the Protestants are endorsing transubstantiation by another name? And I wrote my book into that space where I I said, the the responses to the ecumenical agreement make clear that people want to know, are we signing up for transubstantiation or are we abandoning transubstantiation? And and I try to argue that um, transubstantiation, we need to understand what its intentions were and and how it relates to the affirmations of, of the reformers. Because if we're just affirming or denying it as an identity marker, that's not gonna help us to understand one another.
0: The book is Transubstantiation, Theology, History, and Christian Unity. It's out with Baker Academic. Thank you, Brett Salkeld.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Mark.
0: And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.